Right where we're there in Isaiah 61, and uh, tonight we won't have to be very long. Isaiah 61 is just 11, 11 verses, so we can try to do it quickly tonight as we're studying the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to kind of give you some things to think about and some things as we study the chapter, and then we'll make some applications and kind of get into some preaching. But I want you to notice the first two verses of Isaiah 61. The Bible says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in Isaiah 61. That's the text for tonight. But go with me to the New Testament book of Luke, Luke chapter number 4. In your New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to spend a lot of time tonight in Luke looking at different passages. And we're actually going to go back and forth. So keep your finger in Isaiah 61 and find Luke chapter number 4. And we're going to flip back and forth. And I want you to notice uh, some similarities between these passages. In Luke chapter 4, we have the Lord Jesus Christ beginning his ministry. And when Jesus began his ministry, after his baptism by John, one of the first things that he did is he entered into the synagogue in Nazareth. And we read about it here in Luke chapter 4. He takes the Bible. And they give to him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he actually begins to read out of Luke 61, where we just read. He closes it, and he preaches his first sermon. And of course, you know, they loved his sermon. They tried to throw him off a cliff, actually, right after his first sermon. And that was the kind of the beginning to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read there, Luke chapter 4, look at verse number 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, notice what the Bible says. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as... His custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. So that's the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, notice these words, he found there a place. Now the place that he found was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus specifically went to this passage. He wanted to use this passage to kind of kick off his ministry. And notice what the Bible says, where it was written. Now I want you to notice, we're going to flip back and forth, and I want you to notice the similarities between the passage. Verse 18, he's reading from Isaiah. So we're reading Isaiah in the New Testament. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to them that are bruised to preach the acceptable here of the Lord. Now, there's some very uh, unique things about these, comparing these passages that I want you to notice, all right? And there are some questions that we can answer as we look at this. Now, go back to Isaiah 61, and I want you to notice a few things. Whenever you have a quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, people will often find that the quotes are not exactly the same. They usually don't match up in the exact same way. And sometimes people will use that as an attack on the Bible, and they'll say that it contradicts itself. But I want you to notice that as we look at these quotes, the Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament, and we look at the differences, there's actually things that we can learn. The first thing you can learn is that God will often define a word for us when it is quoted from the Old Testament into the New Testament. See, the King James Bible serves as its own dictionary. As you read the Bible, you can allow the Bible to define itself. A lot of false doctrine comes from people going to dictionaries and commentaries that teach things that go against the Word of God. If we just allowed the Bible to define itself, we would save ourselves a lot of problems. And often we can define the Bible by finding where, you know, you have parallel passages. Sometimes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will deal with the same stories. And you can look at those stories and kind of compare them. And there's not contradictions but there are insights into what we can learn about it. Now, if you're there in Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, go to Luke's, uh, Isaiah 61 and look at verse number 1, and we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 4, and I want you to notice some similarities, okay? The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach. Now, notice what Isaiah 61 says, to preach good tidings. Now what that means, the word tidings means news. What he's saying is to preach good news. Now I want you to notice how the Lord Jesus Christ reads it in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, look at verse number 18. Notice what the Bible says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach. Notice what he says. The gospel. Do you see that? Now some people say, well that's a contradiction, but that's not a contradiction because the word gospel means good news. 
And what the Bible is doing is defining the word for us. In the Old Testament, he says, good tidings. In the New Testament, he says, gospel. And the gospel is the good news. First, uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, was buried, and rose from the grave. Hey, that's good news. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to pay for your sins in hell. Jesus has already made that sacrifice. So there, you see an example that the Bible will define itself. What does the gospel mean? It means good news. Let me give you another example. Go back to Isaiah 61. Look, notice what it says. Uh, it says to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up broken, the, the brokenhearted. I want you to notice this word, to proclaim. Okay? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound. Notice verse 2. And uh, to proclaim. You see those, those two words there in verse uh, 1. It said, to proclaim liberty, and in verse 2 it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 4, notice verse number 18. Notice how, it's, how the word is used there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Notice, to preach uh, deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind uh, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Notice verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So again, in Isaiah, the word is to proclaim. In Luke, the word is to preach. What is the Bible doing there? It's defining the word for us. Because that's what the word preach means. It means to proclaim. It means for somebody to stand up and say out loud and to, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To preach deliverance. To proclaim deliverance to the captive. So the first thing I want you to notice, as you study the Bible and you'll begin to see parallel passages and you'll begin to see the New Testament, quote the Old Testament, often when we compare those passages, we can see the Bible defining itself for us. But sometimes you'll find things that maybe don't look like they're a definition, and you've got to understand that sometimes there is a language translation issue uh, that goes into it. Let me give you an example, all right? Uh, go back to Isaiah 61. Look at verse 1. Now, notice what the Bible says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to, I want you to make, make uh, note of these words, He has sent me to bind up. Do you see that word? Bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim, notice, liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, I want you to notice how it's read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has made me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to, notice, heal the brokenhearted. Now, in, Luke, in Isaiah, it said, bind up the brokenhearted. In Luke 4.18, it tells us to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives. Now, in Isaiah 61, if you flip back and forth, you'll see in Isaiah 61, it says liberty to the captives. In Luke 4.18, it says deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Notice, to set at liberty them that are bruised. In Isaiah 61, it says the opening of the prison. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? When the Bible says in Luke, in Isaiah 61.1, to bind up the brokenhearted, and then in Luke 4.18, it tells us to heal the brokenhearted. When something is broken, think about a bone being broken. You've got to bind it up so that it'll heal properly. The idea there is the same. It's telling us to bind up the brokenhearted, and it's telling us to heal the brokenhearted. It tells us to preach liberty to the captives in Isaiah, and in Luke it says deliverance to the captive. Now, if I take a captive person and deliver them, what am I doing? I am setting them free. So it's telling us to preach liberty to captives, deliverance to the captives, uh, Isaiah 61.1, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Uh, Luke 4.18, to set at liberty. Again, if someone's in prison and I open the prison, what did I just do? I set them at liberty. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. So when you have the Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament, you're going to take a Hebrew passage and translate it into Greek for it to be in, our, uh, in the New Testament. So when Isaiah is quoted in the book of Luke, we are taking a Hebrew passage that is being translated into Greek. Now that's, that's enough right there because if, any, if you've ever you know, studied languages, if you've ever looked at languages, you know, uh, I speak uh, Spanish you know, fluently and English and sometimes you know, when I was a kid I'd have to 
translate things for my parents or maybe look at things for them. And you'll notice that things never translate exactly the same because languages are different. Sometimes they're not going to be put in the right order or things of that nature. But here's the thing. Not only are you taking Hebrew and translating it into Greek, then we are taking that Hebrew and that Greek and translating it into English for your King James Bible. So it's going through a lot of different translations. So here's what you have to understand. Just because two passages may not have the exact same words doesn't mean that they're in contradiction to each other. Doesn't mean that, look, if I said the opening of the prison to them that are bound and I said to set at liberty, you know, that it means the same thing. And it's just the fact that these translations have gone from Hebrew to Greek in one sense, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and then both from their Hebrew language or the Greek language into, uh, into the English language that we're speaking. So you're not always going to find, you know, contradi- it's not always a contradiction when they're not exactly the same. So when you compare passages, you can see, number one, God defining words for us. You can see number two, just the fact that languages, as you translate them, are going to be different. But I want you to notice a couple of things, okay? Now, notice in Isaiah 61.1, notice what the Bible says. The Spirit of the Lord, notice this word, God. You see that capital G, capital O, capital D? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, all right? Now, go look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Notice what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice what's missing. God. See that word God missing? Now notice what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because notice the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Look at Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He. All right. So when Jesus read it, He took out this word God and He took out the words the Lord And he just put in the word he for the Lord. And he just said the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Instead of saying the spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. Now, keep reading in Luke 4.18 and notice what it says. He hath anointed me to preach the, uh, the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. Notice, notice what it says here. And the recovering of sight to the blind. Okay, Make note of that phrase. And recovering of sight to the blind. Go to Luke chapter 61. Notice what it doesn't say. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. But notice, it doesn't say, and recovering, to the sight, uh, recovering of sight to the blind, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now you say, well, Pastor Mans, why are you showing us this? Okay, I'm not trying to shake your faith in the Word of God. All right? The King James Bible is God's Word in the English language. It's preserved. The Bible says God promised to preserve His Word from this generation forever. All right? So there's no mistakes in the Bible. But I do want you to notice that sometimes, you know, especially here in this passage, Isaiah says God and Jesus did not read God. Isaiah says the Lord and Jesus read He. And then Isaiah doesn't say, and recovering of sight to the blind, and Jesus read recovering of sight to the blind. Now you say, well, what is that about? Why did Jesus do that? Go with me to 2 Peter uh, chapter number 1. Now I can't necessarily explain to you why Jesus does what he does. Jesus is God and Jesus does what he wants to do. But I want to explain to you something about Bible translation and just understanding uh, how, how this idea works, okay? Second Peter, chapter number 1, and verse number 21. Towards the end of the, uh, uh, of the New Testament, Second Peter, chapter number 1, and verse 21. The Bible says this. For the prophecy. Now, the prophecy would be including the book of Isaiah. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. See, today people will attack the word of God and they'll say, well, the Bible was written by man. But the Bible says that it did not come by the will of man. No man sat down and said, I think I'm going to write the Bible. And by the way, no man would write the Bible. The books that men write talk about how good man is, you know, the power of positive thinking, the fact that you're not that bad, you know, the fact that it's, it's your parents' fault, everything is your mom's fault or your dad's fault or somebody did you wrong. Man would not write a book that says there is none righteous, no, not one. Man would not write a book that says for the wages of sin is death. Man would not write the Bible. And the Bible tells us, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. Here's how it came. But holy men of God spake 
as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here's what you got to understand. When the Bible was written, the Holy Ghost came upon men. And in, you know, we call it the inspiration of Scripture, but here's what it was. Holy men of God spake, and you got to understand, the Bible was first spoken, then written. They spake the word of God, and as they spake, it was God using their mouth. In the book of Acts, it tells us that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. It was God using their mouth, but it was God's word. You know, the idea today would be like if I were to take a pen and I were to write a letter, you know, and people would say, that pen wrote that letter. No, the pen was the tool that I used to write the letter. The same way with Moses, same way with Paul, same way with Peter. They were the instrument that God used, but it was God speaking through them. Now, because it is God's word, go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. I just want to give you some, you know, we're, we're kind of doing a little bit of Bible study tonight and just some things for you to understand, and then we're going to get into preaching in a little bit. But go to Revelation 22. It should be fairly easy to find. It's the last uh, chapter in the New Testament, Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Look at verse number, uh, let's see, 18. Revelation 22. Look at verse number 18. Notice what the Bible says. For I testify unto every man that heareth the word of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto, uh, unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now look, the Bible tells us that you and I are not allowed to take away or add to the word of God. In fact, God says that someone, he says, if you take away or you add to, he will take your part out of the book of life. Someone will actually cross, the Bible teaches that you can cross the line. When you mess with God's word, you can cross the line. Well, he will not allow you to be saved because we're not talking about losing your salvation, but someone who's not saved because someone who is saved would not mess with God's word. But if you're not saved and you're messing with God's word, you're removing from it, you're adding to it. God says you've lost your opportunity to be saved. Now, here's what you got to say. You and I are not allowed to take away. We're not allowed to add. That's what's wrong with these new modern Bible versions. If you've got an NIV or you've got a New American Standard, you've got those Bibles, we can show you how they've removed entire uh, verses and they've added phrases, they've taken away, they've done what they want with the Word of God, and you and I are not allowed to do that. But why did God do it? Go to John chapter number 1. Why did Jesus do it? Excuse me. Jesus is God, but I want to make sure we're talking, you're on the same page with me. John chapter number 1. Why did Jesus take away from the Word of God? Well, first of all, why are we not allowed to take away from the Word of God? Why are we not allowed to add to the Word of God? Here's why. Because it's not our words. It's God's words. And we can't take away from God. We can't add to what God said. It is our job to just proclaim what the Bible says. But notice what the Bible says about Jesus. John chapter number 1. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is what we're talking about, right? Now, the Bible tells us the Word was from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And notice, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see that? See, the Bible teaches that the Word not only was with God, but the Word was God. Notice verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was, with, was the light of men. Now, when it says all things were made by Him, all things were made by who? Who's the subject? The Word. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You got to understand this. God's Word has existed from the beginning. The, the, the phrase there, in the beginning, is taking us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Word has always been around. It wasn't written down when Moses wrote it. It wasn't given to us when Paul wrote it. It's always been. The Word was from the beginning. And you got to understand, we're, when we're talking about the Word, we're talking about the Word of God. Now, when we say the Word is God, we're not talking about the book. We're not talking about the leather binding. We're not talking about the pages and the ink. But these words are God. The Bible says, in the beginning, these words, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. These words are true. Now, who is the Word? Look at verse 14. John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the word became flesh. 
God was manifest in the flesh. And you say, well, how, do you, how does that make sense? The words of God became flesh. I don't know how that works. I don't understand it, but I accept it by faith. Now, here's the, here's the thing. People will attack Jesus, and they'll say he was messing with God's word and look for it because he removed these words, and he added these words. But here's what you understand. You and I are not allowed to take away. We're not allowed to add because we're not God. We cannot add to God. But guess what? Jesus is God. See, you say, well, well, it didn't say, it, it said God. Well, God decided to read it without the word God, and God can do whatever God wants. And, you know, it was like, well, they didn't say, you know, about the blind there and receiving the sight of light. But Jesus chose to say it because he is God. And whatever came out of his mouth is the word of God. Because he was the word. You understand? The word was made flesh. So it's not something for us to be scared about. And somebody shows you and says, look, here, you know, these, there's a contradiction. No, you don't understand. Jesus is the word. Now, you better not mess with the word. And I better not mess with the word. Because that's the word of God. And only God can decide to change it. But if anything, Jesus is trying to show us something. Because think about the fact that he's reading the book of Isaiah to these men. They probably know exactly what it says. And as he begins to add and change and put things, he's explaining to them, guess who's sitting in front of you? It's the word. It's God. And when I speak, I speak for God because I am God. That's what Jesus was teaching. Now, Go back to, uh, to, to Isaiah there, and, uh, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and explain and tell you that I understand how all of this works. There's definitely, you know, the Bible says they're poor, and it's translated meek. I don't understand, you know, exactly how all of that works, and we understand that, you know, meek has the idea of being poor in spirit, and we, we understand all that. But here's what you, gotta, you just got to get. You just got to settle in your heart. God gave us his Bible, and if Jesus decided to read it a certain way or to not read it a certain way, that it's because he's God, and he can do whatever he wants, and whatever he says is the word of God. Now, here's, here's the thing. What, what I think is interesting is that when he talks about the fact, when he adds the phrase, and recovering of sight to the blind, He's not that far, you know, he he's probably understands the context of Isaiah 61. I'm not going to take the time to show you all the passages, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about people being blind. Remember last week, the whole chapter was about a new day dawning and the fact that the darkness would run. And, and the chapters have been about blind people groping in the darkness, not being able to see or discern. So the fact that he added that phrase shows that Jesus understood the context of what he was talking about. And Jesus was, we know that he was actually physically healing blind people in his ministry. So there's many reasons why he might have added it. But let me just show you one more thing about the translation there from Isaiah 61 to Luke chapter 4. Notice Isaiah 61 and verse 2, okay? Isaiah 61 and verse number 2. Let me show you something else that Jesus did with this passage. Isaiah 61 and verse 2. Notice what it says. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now I want you to notice when it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, I want you to notice that comma there, okay? After the word Lord. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that more. Now notice when Jesus reads this passage in Luke 4.19, go, go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 19, and I want you to notice how he reads it. He says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, but notice no comma, there's a period. You see that? Luke chapter 4 and verse 19, it says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and then let me show you, uh, let me get there myself, and notice what it says. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord, notice verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Okay, so I want you to notice Jesus stops reading in the middle of the verse because Luke 61 two says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that more. But when Jesus read it, he read to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and then he stops reading. He closes the book. He returns it and he says this day is the scripture fulfilled in your in your ears. And, and here's what you understand. He purposely stopped reading right there. Now you say, well, why did he do that? Okay. Now we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but the acceptable, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord means to preach the gospel. And I'm going to prove that to you from the Bible. But I want you to notice that this verse, Isaiah 61, 2, 
spans the first and the second coming of Christ, or the first and second advent of Christ. Because notice what it says, Isaiah 61, 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus said when he came on this earth, he said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to preach the gospel. He came to reach the unreached. He came to die for us, and he came to preach the gospel. That's what he did in his first coming. But, at his, but notice, when Jesus came the first time, he didn't, he didn't you know, bring the wrath of God. He didn't bring vengeance. He didn't bring those things, because notice what it said, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that is to come. In the second coming. See, the first time he came as a lamb, the second time he comes as a lion. The first time he came just preaching salvation, the second time he comes, you know, with vengeance. And Jesus stopped right there just to show today, right now, all I'm doing is preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. But when I, when I get back, we'll deal with the vengeance part. But he just read that part and he closed the book and he said, that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to do right now. So he stopped reading right in the middle of the passage to make a point. But, you know, just for those of you that study the Bible, that ought to teach you a lesson. It ought to teach us a lesson. That little comma between the year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, that little comma has stood for more than 2,000 years. You understand that? I mean, it's the, the acceptable, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the first coming of Christ. Comma, 2,000 plus years later, you know, and the day of vengeance of our God. And that ought to show you how prophecy works in the Old Testament and how quickly just in one phrase, in one statement, you could be spanning, you know, just thousands of years. And we ought to be very careful as we study the word of God. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's why we've got to go to the New Testament and let it shed light on the Old Testament. So often people will read the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel and these Old Testament prophets, and they'll get all sorts of improper doctrine, but here's why, because they're not rightly dividing the word of truth. And Jesus was showing us right there how to divide the word of truth. He says, this is the first coming, comma, this is the second coming. I'm not here to deal with the second coming, so I'm going to stop reading right here. And he gives us a lesson about Bible study. All right, go back to Isaiah 61, look at verse 1. That was all and just kind of teaching you about the Bible and comparing things and helping you understand how to study the Bible. And I hope, I hope you have faith in the fact that Jesus was God. I hope you have faith in the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And that as God, he could, you know, add to and remove because they were his words. But that doesn't mean you and I get to do it because we're sinners, because we're not God. But notice Isaiah 61. We're going to deal primarily with these two verses tonight and, and, and a little bit of, of the other verses. But I want you to notice something else. Isaiah 61.1, and I don't really have an outline tonight. I'm just kind of giving you things to think about. I'm going to give you all sorts of different things from these chapters. Hopefully some of it will help you, and hopefully some of it will will fall in the right places to to help you as we go along. Isaiah 61.1, notice what the Bible says. The Spirit of the Lord God, I want you to notice this word, is upon me. Now, today we have a lot of people who talk about the Spirit of God coming upon you. And we've got all these Pentecostal and charismatic churches that talk about the Spirit of God coming upon someone. And when you get filled with the Spirit and when you get the power of the Spirit. But I want you to notice what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Notice, because. So why does the Spirit of God come upon a person? Why does the Spirit of the Lord God come upon an individual? Here's why. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good Tidings. See, the Spirit of God would come upon an individual in the Old Testament to do some great work. And for you and I, because this passage is about Jesus. That's why Jesus read it and said, it's about me. But for you and I as New Testament believers, when the Spirit of God comes upon us, it comes upon us for one reason, to preach good tidings, to preach the gospel. Let me show it to you in the New Testament. Go to the book of Acts. Now, if you kept your finger in Luke, because we're going to go back and forth from Luke, but if you're there in Luke, just go past the book of John into the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. Tonight's very much like a Bible study. Acts chapter 1, and I want you to notice verse number 8. Now, notice what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is right before he ascends up to heaven, right before he leaves uh, the disciples. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, notice what he says. He says, but ye shall receive power. But ye shall receive power, notice, 
After that, the Holy Ghost, notice the words, is come upon you. Do you see that? Now, Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings. And the word anoint means to be poured over. It means that the Holy Spirit pours over you, comes on you. Now, notice, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you so that you can go, you know, into Arco Arena and bring in 10,000 people and heal them and hit them on the forehead and make a lot of money. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon you so you can put on a silly suit like Benny Hinn and try to go make money by telling people you're going to heal them. Now notice, in the Old Testament it says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon you. Why? Because He has anointed me to preach the gospel. But notice what Jesus said, Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Why? And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. See, the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God comes upon us for the purpose of preaching the gospel, for the purpose of preaching the good tidings, for the purpose of being a witness in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's why the Spirit of God comes upon us. Now, later on in the book of Acts, go to Acts uh, chapter number uh, 2 there. Later on, the Holy Spirit came upon them. But notice what they did. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a, mighty, uh, as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utter. Now, that's where the Pentecostals want to stop. And they want to say, see, the Spirit of God comes upon us so that we can speak with tongues so he can sit there and, and have all this gibberish and jibber-jabber and get up and talk about how God, you know, uh, God is speaking through us. But notice what happened. Because it, it says in verse 4 that they spake with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But guess what? Cha- verse 4 is not where the chapter ends. you got to read the Bible in its context. To study. Remember, study to show thyself approved unto God. Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And I don't have time to get into it, but the day of Pentecost was a special day where all the Jews would kind of migrate back to Jerusalem, or many of them, from all sorts of, the Bible says, from every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Because, that, notice, they were confounded. They were, they were confused. They, were, uh, they, 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 they weren't sure, you know, what's going on. And here's why they were confounded. Because that every man heard them speak in his own, notice this word, language. You see that? See, the Bible just defines itself. You see how the Bible, it's its own dictionary? You say, well, what, what does it mean? What does the word gospel mean? It means good tidings. So the Bible defines it. What does the word tongues mean? It means languages. He says, they heard them speak in their own language. Look at verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own what? What's it say? Tongue. Wherein we were born. See, they said we heard them speak in our own tongue. They said we heard them speak in our own language. It says they spoke in different tongues. And the Bible just defined for us. See, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Here's what happened. 120 local Galileans had the Spirit of God come upon them. And they had the ability to speak languages that they never spoke. And they had the ability to preach the gospel. Because that's why the Spirit of God comes upon someone. In order to preach Not to get up in a service and run around and roll around like some sort of dog and bark and get all excited and say, oh, it's the power of God. No, they went out. And if you read the passage, they go out and get 3,000 plus people saved and baptized. Because they preach the gospel. Because why does the Spirit of God come upon an individual? To preach the gospel. That's what the Bible says. As New Testament believers, go back to Isaiah 61. Look at verse 1. I'm just giving you some things to catch from this passage. So next time you read it, you can think of those things. You can study them out on your own. Isaiah 61. Notice what the passage tells us to focus on. We kind of talked about this this morning. Isaiah 61, look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. Now I want you to make note of these words. Unto the meek, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now go, back, go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. I, I don't know if you kept your place there, but... Uh, if you can make your way back to Luke chapter 4 and 18, notice how it's read there by Jesus in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. See, the Bible teaches that we are to focus on the poor. We are to focus on the brokenhearted. We are to focus on the captives, the blind, the bound. See, today people get this idea that, you know, in church that we want to we go focus on the rich folk. And let's go have a ministry to the rich folk. And I know of an independent fundamental Baptist church in Sacramento where they, you know, only knock on doors in like, you know, the nice neighborhoods. And every time we go into a nice neighborhood and knock doors, we see their flyers everywhere. And they've never came to my house because I don't live in a nice neighborhood, you know. And, and, and whenever we go into the ghettos, we never see their invitations. We never see their flyers. And here's why. Because in their mind, they say, we just want to reach certain type of people. We want to reach people that have money. We want to reach people that are going to put money in the offering plate. But what does the Bible tell us we ought to focus our attention on when it comes to preaching the gospel? We ought to focus on the poor. We ought to focus on the brokenhearted. We ought to focus on the captive, the bound, the one that's burdened down with sin and addicted. Why? God says focus on those people. And as we focus on those people, God will take care of the finances. God will take care of the offerings. God will take, God tells us, hey, focus on the poor. Remember, he says the rich man, he said they, they, they are hard to get saved. He said it's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, but focus on the poor. And Jesus taught this all throughout the Bible. You're there in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Look at verse number 16. Now, in Luke 14, we have a parable. Now, I'm going to take the time to read the entire parable because it has a lot of connections to Luke 61. So I want you to pay attention as we read it. Luke chapter 14. Look at verse 16. Then he said unto them, a certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, salvation is often pictured as a supper. Remember, we're going to have that, uh, that marriage supper of the Lamb up in heaven. That's why we sing, come and dine, you know, uh, and, and, that, and all those songs about that, that, that type of thing. Because it's picturing salvation. So, a certain man a cer- uh, uh, and his servants at supper time to say to... Uh, good night. Let's, let's begin reading verse 16. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are not ready. And they all with one consent to be- began to make excuse. Isn't this how it is when we're out soul winning? The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, what this is picturing is the fact that the Jews were presented the gospel, presented the Messiah, and they were not interested. He's, the Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received them not. And that's what this parable is about, the fact that he came to the Jews, but the Jews, they made excuse. They didn't want it. But notice what he said, verse 20. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor. Notice, bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And that's why we go soul winning. We go out in the highways and the hedges. And who are we looking for? The the poor, the blind, the maimed, the brokenhearted, the, the captives, the people that need help. Why? Because Jesus said that he, did, he, he said, they that are holy, not a physician, but they that are sick. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's why at Verity Baptist Church, we must always have this mindset that we are a spiritual hospital. And as people come in here and their lives are messed up, we want the unwed mother. We want the people with all the tattoos. We want the people struggling with drugs and alcohol. We want to be able to help them and get them off that. We want to proclaim liberty to the captive. We want to, uh, you know, heal the brokenhearted. We want to minister to those people because those are the people that God told us to focus on. And we must never get this attitude, you know, where people walk in, like it says in the book of James, and, and because they're dressed bad or they're not dressed nicely, we're going to, you know, tell them to go, go sit over there and we're going to have respect for the rich man that walks in dressed nice. Hey, listen, our job is to reach out to the sin sick. Our job is to reach out. That's what he, he told us, to reach out to those people that are sick, the, the meek and the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound, the bruised, the blind, the poor, the maimed, the halt. The blind. And here's what I've noticed. 
If you take care of that, God, God will bring in people, you know, with money, and God will bring in people with finances, and God will bring in, look, we're not struggling financially. Have you seen our bulletin? I mean, praise the Lord. You know, I don't know where the money comes from. We just, God, you, we, we just focus on the poor. We just focus on preaching the gospel. We just focus on getting people saved. We just focus on knocking doors, and God takes care of the rest because God wants us to be focused. And here's, here's the thing about Christianity. We ought to focus on those, and it goes with this morning's sermon about being unselfish. We ought to focus on those that can do nothing for us. We ought to, fo- you know, we ought to send that van out and pick people up. And you say, well, well, they might not be able to give. To, it doesn't matter. We ought not. We, we should not have this agenda that we're going to go reach people that are going to then help us out. No, we want to reach people that can't help us. We want to love people that can't do anything for us. We want to. We want to reach out in the love of Christ, and we'll let God take care of the rest. He's teaching us here to reach out to the brokenhearted. Reach out to the blind. Reach out to the poor, the maimed, the halt. Go back to Isaiah 61. Look at verse number 2. And we're, we're almost done. We won't be very long. To proclaim, I want you to notice this phrase, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now in Luke 4.19, he said to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now what does that mean, the acceptable year of the Lord? You're there in Isaiah 61. Go back a few chapters into Isaiah 49. And let me just give you a couple of verses to reference back in your Bible study. You can write these in the margin of your Bible. Because remember, we want to allow the Bible to define itself, right? So we want to know what the word acceptable year of the Lord, what that's talking about. Well, we study the Bible and we let the Bible define itself. Isaiah 49, look at verse number 8. Thus saith the Lord... In an acceptable, make, make note of that word. Because remember, Isaiah 61 said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isaiah 49, 8 says this, Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation, notice, and a day of salvation have I helped thee. There's a connection between the acceptable time and the day of salvation in the Bible. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate uh, heritages, verse 9, that thou mayest say, notice, notice the connection to Isaiah 61, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways and their pasture shall be in all high places. See, there's a connection between salvation and taking people that are, because you can understand, sin puts people in bondage. And our job is to go to people in bondage and make them free and, and, and set them free and say, hey, go forth. You can walk in liberty. You can walk in freedom. And we can bring to them salvation. Let me give you another cross-reference. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. We're almost done. We're going we're, we're to look at just one more thing after this, and then, and then we'll, we'll finish up for tonight. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. I just want you to get this cross-reference. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 2. Notice how the words are used throughout these passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. You see that word accepted? And in the day of salvation. See the word salvation? No, these words are all connected. Salvation, accepted, acceptable time in a day of salvation. He says, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So when Jesus said that he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that phrase is talking about preaching the gospel. That's why he said good tidings. That's why he said to go to the brokenhearted, to the, to the, to the blind, and, and all of those things. Let me give you one more thing uh, to think about, and we'll finish up. Go back to Isaiah 61. Look at verse number 3. Now, in Isaiah 61, because this passage, I don't know if you noticed, it's all about salvation. A lot of it is about salvation, preaching the gospel, having the Holy Spirit come upon you, and, and setting the captive free. Isaiah 61, and verse 3, I want you to notice what the Bible says here. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Notice what he's doing. He, he, he's making a trade, and that's what salvation is. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Said you were mourning, but I'm going to give you the oil of joy. Uh, uh, of joy, Hebrews 1:9 talks about the oil of gladness. For anybody who wants to look that up later, notice what it says. And I, and I want you to make note of this, okay? The garment of praise. Do you see that? The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. 
that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now go down to verse number 10, okay? And remember it said the garment of praise in verse 3? Notice what it says in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation. Do you see that? The garment of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see that? As a bridegroom decketh himself. That's where we get, when you ever look at someone and say, man, that guy's decked out. That's where we get that phrase from. As the bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So in verse 3, it says that he gave us the garment of praise. In verse 10, he said that he gave us the garment of salvation. Garment meaning clothing. In in, in verse 10, he said there, the robe of righteousness. Now, we already saw the connection between Isaiah 61 and the parable about the supper from the book of Luke. Remember, he said to go find the blind and the maim and the hall, and it's preaching the same idea that Isaiah 61. But here's another uh, connection with the same parable. Now, we're not going to look at it in Luke. I want you to look at it in Matthew, all right? Go to Matthew 22, and I'm just going to make these connections. We're going to go to Matthew 22, then we're going to go to the book of Genesis and we'll be done, all right? Matthew 22, look at verse number 9. Now, we're going to look at the same parable that we saw uh, in the book of Luke, but we're going to look at it in Matthew 22. Notice what it says. Go ye therefore into the highways. Remember, he said that in the parable in Luke. And as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, I love this phrase in in Matthew 22, both bad and good. They found bad people, they found good people, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now notice the connection to Isaiah 61. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man, notice, which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servant, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice, in the parable, he says they bring in both both bad and good. That's what it says in verse number 10. But the only thing that mattered wasn't whether they were good, wasn't whether they were bad, wasn't whether they were religious, wasn't whether they'd repented of their sins, whether they got baptized, whether they put money in the offering plate. None of that mattered. Only one thing mattered. Did they have on a wedding garment? And in Isaiah 61, we're told that when we get saved, He gives us the garment of praise. He gives us the garment of salvation. He gives us the robe of righteousness. Because you got to understand, you don't get into heaven. You don't get into the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't get into the big party in heaven. You don't get in by being good. You don't get in by being religious. You don't get in by by living a good life. You get in by one thing. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? And this goes back all the way to the book of Genesis. Let's look at it together and we'll finish up. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Remember the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve? That's where the woman messed up and messed everything up. Remember that story? I'm just kidding. Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse number. Don't forget that story. Genesis chapter 3, ladies. Look at verse 3. I'm just kidding. If Eve wouldn't have done it, Adam would have done it. Eve, the Bible says Eve was deceived and Adam was disobedient. That's why the, the transgression fell on him. Genesis, and of course, he's a leader. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Remember, she wasn't supposed to take the fruit, but she was beguiled by the, by the serpent, and she went ahead and, and, and sinned against God. And it was a sin because it was disobedience. God had told him, you can eat of any of the trees, but not of this one. And she went ahead and did it anyway, and her husband followed her in the sin. Notice verse 7. In the eyes of them... Both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And notice what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. All right? Now, think about an apron. You know, you ladies have an apron maybe at, uh, in, in, your, uh, in your kitchen or whatever. Think about what an apron. You put an apron on, and it covers the front of you, right? But an, an apron, if you're naked and you put on an apron, guess what? It's not going to cover enough, right? I mean, you're going to be exposed a lot. 
And what the Bible is teaching us here, there's a picture that when Adam and Eve realized their condition, notice, the Bible says, they sowed fig leaves. You know what they did? They went to work. They went out, they found a bunch of fig leaves, they sewed them together, they did the best they could with the resources, they did the best they could, they got to work, they, they made this, they put it on, but it didn't cover them completely. And it wasn't enough. And when God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? You know, and, and, and he sees Adam and he sees Eve and he sees what they've done. The fig leaf, they were hoping the fig leaf would hide the fact that they had sinned, but it wasn't enough to cover them. But notice what God does at the end of the story. Verse 21. Skip down to verse 21. We won't take the time to read the whole thing, but just notice what God does at the end. And think about it. This is the Garden of Eden. Up to this point, all the animals and all mankind has basically been vegetarians. Nothing has died. Because sin, you know, as of by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all of sin. Nothing has died up to this point. They've never seen death. They've never seen blood. They've never seen a dead carcass. And notice what happens at the end of the story, verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife, notice, did the Lord God make. Okay, So in verse 7, we saw Adam and Eve's work. They sewed fig leaves together. They made an apron that covered them a little bit, but it didn't cover enough. Not enough to hide their sin. But notice, when God steps in, unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make, here's God's word, coats of skin and clothe them. Do you know what God did? He looked at those aprons and he said, well, you, you, you tried hard and you did a good job, but that's not good enough. He said, you, you, you did a good job and you tried hard, but that's not covering you. That's just an apron. That's not an entire robe of carbon. That's not a coat. That's not going to be enough to cover you. And here's what God did. He takes an animal for the first time ever. And he kills that animal. And he sheds the blood of that animal. And he takes the skin off that animal. And he makes a coat for Adam. And he makes a coat for Eve. And he covers them up. And he's trying to teach them to be saved. You cannot cover yourself with your works. It's not enough. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. See, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a lamb that died. There had to be that sacrificial lamb. Why? So that you and I could be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, you get into the wedding. Only if you have the wedding garment. Well, they're good and they're bad. That doesn't make a difference. You don't get in whether you're good. You don't get in whether you're bad. Because guess what? There's none that do it good. No, not one. You're not good enough. Say, well, my apron's real nice. I mean, it's, it's a Martha Stewart apron. I mean, you know, I paid a lot of money for this apron. It's not enough to cover you. You need the robe of righteousness. You need the garment of salvation. You need to be clothed in the lamb, the sacrifice. That's the picture. That's how you get into heaven. Not by your good works. Not by your, all your sins you quit sinning and all the things and all the money you gave. That's not what gets you into heaven. It's the robe of righteousness. And this, it's interesting to me at this parable, it's almost like Jesus was thinking about Isaiah 61 when he taught these parables because he makes these connections from Isaiah 61 uh, in, in, in the parable there. 